Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How you feeling? I'm doing great. I'm doing Wonderful. great. How are you doing? I'm a little loose and buzzy. <laughs> there she is. Look, she it's is. rare that I drink before a record. I'd go so far as to sure. say it's unprecedented. Yeah, but I am in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Yeah, my home on native land. Um, and I got an invite to friend of the podcast, Aaron Conway's house, uh, for dinner tonight. Could I make it? No, we had a record. Did I instead just invite myself over? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I can't make it to dinner, but I could come early and have a drink. Did I have one? No. Did I have a few? Maybe. That's where I'm at. You haven't been home in ages, with exception to the most recent time you've been home. But yeah. The point is, the point is, uh, you're making up for lost time. And I think that's great. Couldn't be happier. Because look at you getting out, seeing people enjoying getting out and seeing people whereas if i have to leave the house oh like i'm i'm not gonna be happy uh but one thing i came across today that made me think of you instantly please uh many things do but uh for those who may or may not know uh i i am currently residing in moose jaw saskatchewan canada and one of the big things we have around this joint is a trolley tour oh sure Now, on my way home 
from 7-Eleven earlier today because I, I need, I needed it earlier today for my spirits. Um, so on the way home, I pass a trolley and it's a new one, but I don't know how to describe it. The one trolley that I've seen go around town is very like Mr. Rogers neighborhood, kind of like cute little trolley, just puttering around. Great. This one looked like it was from the apocalypse. Um, like it just, the windows were a lot smaller and on the front there was this metal thing that I'm sure like, like an old time train would have to get through snow or something. But the second I saw it, I thought of you and immediately went, that's the vehicle I'm going to steal when zombies start happening because zombies aren't good. We're going to plow through them with that metal bit on the front. Yeah. There's space. We'll just have to make sure to get the rest of the windows. But uh, that's the vehicle I'm taking uh, to meet up with you. That's it was practical. always It was always our zombie plan because people are like, they didn't really have a zombie. We absolutely had a zombie. We have plan. for years. Yeah. I used to live near, I no longer do, um, a place where they stored school buses. And so I was like, obviously, we're going to go a few blocks that way. By then, I'll own... Uh, uh, metal cutting scissors so I can like cut through a fence. <laughs> I imagine a lot of somersaults for some reason. Uh, obviously, <laughs> all black. Um, of, co- of course. <laughs> some sort of balaclava, unless it's summer. I can't do that to myself. Um, and then kids, pets, get put in a bus. We board up as many windows as possible. And then we drive down to you to pack up more pets and kids and away we go. Yeah. And we sort it out from there. Yeah. Because we we, talked about meeting at a halfway point. But I think my concern is, and look, I'm still not opposed to that. Obviously, that's the standing plan. I think for me, my concern is like now our access to school buses. You know what I mean? Like, yes. Are you going to be able to get one? Am I going to be able to get one? Should we just rely on the vehicles that we have? What happens when we meet up in the middle? Obviously, we then need at least one large vehicle. Where are we procuring that? And we're also absolutely going to have to siphon the gas out of the current vehicles we have. One of us is going to be choking down gas. I can't drink gas. While we're sucking a hose. (laughs) I don't want (laughs) to suck a hose. Like, I'll do it if I have to. But like... Oh, I don't want to do it either, but I absolutely get it. Like, these are the plans we have to have in advance. We also have to have in advance a meeting place. Because, uh, one, I have concerns about the traffic of trying to get out of L.A. Sure. I've seen, you know, disaster movies. Those freeways clog up. Getting Here's- in and out. Good luck. But also... Uh, we can't rely on cell service because we know that could go down. We're going to need a couple of old phones. Something I can put in a backpack and run the number with the the dial bit somehow. What does it connect to? I don't know. I'm going (laughs) to... Oh, shit. Now I'm going to have to learn how phones work and I'm going to have to create our own system. Like those military phones, you know what I mean? Where you see them out on the battlefield. and The big brick. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the ones that work anywhere. We need to look into that. Can you buy that at like a local sort of like army and navy shop 
type thing. Well, if you can't, we've got an issue. You know what I mean? Like, I think, I think that that needs to be top of list. I think also for me, um, here's the thing. We heard word about COVID before it happened. Sure. In LA. I remember someone saying to me, this is what's coming and this is what it's called and whatever. And I was like, (laughs) I think we have to make a commitment that the second we hear zombies, the second we're told, we err on the side of caution and we head out on this road trip to each other. If it's a false alarm, better to have it and not need it, right? Better to have gotten out yeah, I think that that's the way we have to approach it. And I'm yes. not kidding. Like, if we hear that it's like the first in what is potentially a zombie outbreak involving yeah. one man in California, I'm out. Like, I think we have to make the commitment yeah. that it's like we hear about one zombie and we're gone. Yes. Oh, it's I'm, not going to get better. <laughs> I absolutely am going to need the extra time uh, to get all my Funko Pops in the <laughs> In the tour bus before we head up. I can't leave them all behind. Some no, I think you should have some Tupper-made. Tupper-made. Tupperware or Rubber-made? Pick one. Yep. Yep. I think you should have some Rubber-made bins. Oh, okay. And then you got to decide what's going in. Yeah. I'll tell you. I'll tell you this. Every single Steve I have from Stranger Things. Well. Obviously. Of course. Obviously. Of course. <sighs> The custom ones in the bin. The things that we can't replace. Yeah. What it's going to be is you're, <laughs> you're going to know it's the vehicle we've chosen because I've already decided we have to steal one. But you're going to because I'm going to want space. Yeah. And whatever. Uh, some sort of RV maybe. We'll see. But you're going to know it's me from like so far away because the the like... Dave Grohl uh, cardboard cutout is going to be like attached to the roof or something like it's just the look of it, the sort of flags I'm going to have coming off of it. It's going to be like, is that a is that a 7-Eleven flag? Oh, there she is. That's see, that's how you need to know. That's how you'll know. And I I hope again, if it isn't already outfitted with it, we can have a It's brandy, ladies and gentlemen and people. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like that's. I'd like that. I want the horn to be like very pleasant in the very unpleasant environment. Maybe this. Can we can we pre-program a horn to go? (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. Right. And if not, we're going to have some sort of megaphone system. Where we're just going to have to do it every time ourselves. So whoever drives just yells, horn. And then somebody else has to. Thank you for being friend. Travel down the road back again. We can't pay for any more than that. We already can't pay for that. I couldn't be happier. I would also absolutely accept the lesser known Golden Girls. Miami, Miami, you've got style. I could keep going forever. Who that was the song that? contest. Oh, sure. And Rose and Dorothy decided to work together. And Rose was on the, she was tickling the ivories. Uh, and uh, it 
was a dream. And I, I know all the words to that song. I just love those girls, you know? Yeah. Oh, my God. All have tried to spray paint their faces on the side of this behemoth thing we're going to be driving. Yeah. And then there'll be like a Slurpee and McDonald's fries, like spray painted on the side. I love that. Collection of spray paint. I need to add that. I need a list of pre things that I need to have in these Rubbermaid totes. I some- don't. I don't want to give a note. Yes. I hate to give a note. Please. It's not who I am. (laughs) Do you think there's any value, if it's a priority to you to mark the vehicle with your own zha-zha-zhu, is there any benefit to maybe call me a kook? Just like really... Practicing ahead of time because I could just have see this moment where you're trying to do like a McDonald's fries, which seems simple, but it feels like I could yeah. see the outcome not being what you want. Oh, I can't have the first time I use spray paint in a graffiti decorative fashion to be on the vehicle and then get laughed at by people driving past that are like, why she got a dick on there? It's not a dick. It's fries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the point is, yeah. I I don't know why I'm so obsessed with the idea that they have to like we have to market uh, the vehicle so that it's our own. It's not Mad Max. I'm not is strapping not? somebody to the front of my vehicle. Aren't you? Aren't you? <sighs> it's not Mad Max yet. You're right. Look, I haven't seen some of the older Mad Max movies, but. I think there's been two of the newer ones, or has there only been one of the new ones with uh, Hot Jiu-Jitsu? What's his name? Hot Jiu-Jitsu? What's his name? The guy who does, like, the Jiu-Jitsu? Tom Hardy. Does he do Jiu-Jitsu? I didn't know that. I don't know if it's Jiu-Jitsu, but it's some sort of <laughs> Taekwondo-type fighting or whatever. He okay. put himself in a tournament. So and- did Jake Gyllenhaal, didn't he? Oh, I don't. Sorry, that's UFC. That's UFC. Fair. Well, Tom Hardy won. (laughs) And everyone was like, is that really? It is Tom Hardy. (laughs) And he he won. Um, I don't know how many of those movies there were, but one of them has has assaulted my brain so badly, it's stuck in there. There's a scene. I don't even want to say it, but there's a scene that's in my brain that haunts me to this day. And that's what I think when I think apocalyptic. And that's why I want the trolley with, I don't even know what that thing is called, that metal thing on the front that could like, you know, get zombies out of the way. Can the traveling. trolley go off road? Like, is it, is it roadworthy? Well, I, I don't know. I'm also now, I'm now I'm like, shit, I don't know how fast that thing can go. Not fast enough. Like, what's the point of getting something if I can't hit like 80 or more? You would have to, because if these are fast-moving zombies, good luck. You're right. You're right. I also think this is going to take ice cream trucks off the list. But could we yeah. have a mini fridge? And could we? It's a necessity. Just like what I wouldn't give driving down a deserted highway, cars and bodies all over the road, and I'm just like, hey, can I get a cheese stick? Like, I want to be able to say, 
cheese stick someone hands me a nice ice cold cheese stick no one wants a lukewarm cheese stick what i like is is that you've gone for a cheese stick as your refreshing treat <laughs> yep well i assume i can't have a slurpee machine in there cuz we can't deal with like the amount of things we'd need to pull off a slurpee machine i just have to understand that i'm going to get the the last one the second we hear woo it's happening going down I'll pour myself one final one and just accept that that's it. Yeah. And then anytime I'm angry about it, take it out on the zombies. And the cheese sticks. I'm going to have to get some really big nails and baseball bats to make my own weapons. Of course. Start saving bottles now for Molotovs. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Look, the good news is, is that if yeah. we shine anywhere, it's in situations where we need to research things. So yeah. if we had to research legitimately how to make a Molotov cocktail, I think we can make that happen. I need to disclaimer this and say, don't send us recipes. No. Don't you look it up. No. Nope. You don't want that on your minds. Or your internet search histories. Just know we're talking about down the road, there's a... Yep crazy situation we'll figure it out then um yeah oh i'm gonna wait till that moment and that's when i'll google like what do i need and that's when i start looking into how i how i get into that i realize now though i should prep by like learning electronic things like if, I, if we come across a radio that doesn't work i should be able to fix it put it together so we have a working radio yeah. Change a tire? I should be able to do that. What I'm hearing is we need a good month of solid zombie apocalypse training. Yes. Oh, my God. We need to befriend. Oh, my God. We need to befriend a doctor, preferably a surgeon who's done some, like, <laughs> on the ground <laughs> ER time. Uh, we, we need a vet and a mechanic. We need to BFF with them. So we have someone who's trained in all these things already. And then Tom Hardy can come because he's jujitsu, super strong, fighty guy and nice to look at. Um, I, I would even I would even take one less Funko bin if if we if, to give room for Tom Hardy, a surgeon, a vet and a mechanic walk into a bar. That's what I like. That's what I took from that. Yeah. I stand by it. Yep. Yep. Because those are the people you're going to want. They're the people I want now, if I'm being honest. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the surgeon, the mechanic, or the Tom Hardy? Or someone who's a bit of all three. Or the vet. Oh, the vet, yeah. I could see you and a vet. You know, like, that just makes sense. It's one of my favorite Grey's Anatomy storylines, if I'm going to be completely transparent. Yeah. Was that not Chris O'Donnell? It was. Thank you kindly. That's nice. Isn't it? That's nice. Isn't now, did it? she cheat on him with the uh, hotsy totsy there? What was hotsy totsy? <laughs> Do you I mean Derek aged. Shepard, a.k.a. McDreamy? I absolutely did. I think I she might have. 
Can't believe they didn't go with Hotsy Totsy as a name. I'm sure that was on their first draft. Anyhow, um, yeah. Look, am I in this moment making the connection that maybe Chris O'Donnell as the vet on Grey's Anatomy was akin to Aiden on Sex and the City? Maybe I am. Oh, Maybe I am. And I don't know if people have been watching And Just Like That. And that's a whole other podcast. We don't have time to talk about it. But what I will say is this. Aiden is back. That's nice. Aiden is back. And if you'd like a non-spoiler Lauren Ash review, which absolutely zero people have asked for. Oh, if you think I don't ask for them constantly, I just might not ask for them verbally. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Greatest thing that's ever happened to me in my life. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't be happier. Yep. Now, you know that I didn't really uh, watch the series. Yes, I do know. I've I've seen a smattering of episodes, but not much. So I don't really know situations. I know a burger dumped her on a post-it. But... So they were together, and then did she cheat, and that's why they ended? Yeah. Did she cheat with fucking Big? Yeah. God, that guy is toxic. I even know that, and I've barely seen the show. Here's the thing. She cheated with Big. Aiden forgave her. Oh, okay. They got back together. They were having a grand time. But she was still friends with Big, and she made it clear to Aiden He's always going to be in my life. Why? Aiden somehow said, okay. Somehow was willing to make it work. Mm-hmm. Look, I don't need to get into all the details. All the details. I can. Mm-hmm. Long story short, Carrie's building was going co-op, okay? They were taking away her rent control department from her. And she was like, I don't have enough money to buy this. What am I going to do? And Aiden's like, I have enough money. I have enough money to buy it. I can also buy the unit next to you. And then we can tear down the wall and make a two-unit wide, one-unit dwelling. And he came through the wall. And then she was like, stop it! Stop! Long story short, she was like, I can't do this. It was because he was, quote, pressuring her to marry. And look, I've gone through phases with this in my life over the last 20 years. As long as that show's existed, there are times where I'm like, I can't look at Carrie. There's times where I go, Carrie was doing the best she could at the time. I'm currently at a place where I'm like, I hope she regrets her choices and sees it now. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. So the whole time, the mm-hmm. whole time, the whole time um, that he was like, oh, my God, let's have this double sized place. She was like, I don't want this. I don't want this. But did not verbalize that to him. I or don't did she think, not let it be known that that's what she wanted? I don't think she really knew internally until he mm. physically came through the wall with a sledgehammer. That's so hot to me. Coming through a wall with a sledgehammer? I also like, have that's... to back up. I have to back up for a second and tell you when she cheated on him originally, mm-hmm. he was refinishing her floors for her. Oh. Wow. 
Wowza. Okay. It was too loud. She needed to go work at a hotel. Who shows up at the hotel big? She then embarks on an affair. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Even I know big is not ever good news. And I get it. Everybody has one of those that's like, oh, that guy. She just can't get over him. No, I guess I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because in that moment, I was like, I'm like, huh. Who would mine be? And the answer is none of them. Yep. Wow. Look, I I would make the comment of like, God, maybe I should watch the show. It's a lot. It's It's a lot of show. I don't even think I've seen either of the movies. First movie, there was issues. I loved it. Second movie, hot trash. No kidding. Bad. Second movie was just done for the cash. Is that it? Uh, I think it was just the light racism that was troubling. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Light to mid to heavy. I don't know. Again, it depends on where. It was a different time. I'm. That's not a defense. But yeah, there was just some moments where you were like, what are you thinking? Wow. Everyone? What are you thinking? Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well. But, I mean, they still got a strong fan base, though, right? They do. I think they do. They do. Okay. I'm going to just, again, this is a different podcast. <laughs> I will, I will, uh, zipper the lipper, you know what I mean? And uh, I'm going to, I'm going to nip it in the bud now. We are not starting no, a we're not Sex in the City it. rewatch podcast we're not doing as it. I watch for the first time and you watch for, like, which ultimately is probably the greatest second podcast we've ever come up with. Like, it's brilliant. I bring my long-term knowledge. Of you course. come in fresh. We're not doing it. We'll talk about it. I know. I was just going to say, fuck, that is good. It's a good idea. <sighs> Look, here's yeah. where we're ultimately sitting. <laughs> We're ultimately sitting in a place where I need to ask you, what you drinking over there? Um, well, if Hotsy Totsy didn't make it be known, uh, I've got uh, cherry whiskey and Coke uh, and then a water. Beauty. Just as a backup, you know? What I like is I'm still on the ciders as I'm known to be in Canada. This is the Okanagan nice. crisp apple cider. Delish. And then I got an unopened Diet Coke. A little something again that I'm I'm gonna say is a Canadian speedball. You raise me up and then you bring me down. I I couldn't be happier. And I wanna say I was writing down Okanagan, and that took me a very long time to try and spell that. Hard even though you literally just did. Hard word. Uh, showed me the can. Hard word. But listen, um, let's get into the episode. We're, of course, discussing Patty Hearst this week. And I feel like I know a lot about this case, but do I? Answer, probably not. So for all of us 
who are unclear uh, on the history of this case, let's get you up to speed right now. In February 1974, 19-year-old heiress Patty Hearst was abducted from her own home. The group responsible believed that they could use Patty to draw attention to the oppression and injustice of poor people in America. But just two months after Patty was taken, she shocked the world by joining her captors and helping them rob a bank. Patty remained with the group for 17 months, during which time they robbed more banks and even planted bombs. When they were finally arrested, Patty claimed that she was just an innocent victim and that they had been brainwashed by her captors to go along with their crimes. Was Patty Hearst really a helpless victim who got brainwashed? Or had she simply grown bored with her life and was looking for excitement? Christy Oxborough investigates. You're damn right she does. Damn right. And I'll say it. Prior to this, I knew nothing. I knew of her, and I knew she was kidnapped, and I knew she robbed a bank. And that's kind of where uh, my knowledge of it ended, but uh, this is why we do what we do. That's why we do it. So disclaimer, off the top, this episode will contain brief very brief mentions of rape and suicide, so trigger warning for those who need it. Now, before I can fully get into Patty's story, I need to briefly mention her grandfather, William Randolph Hearst. I don't have a ton of time to devote to him, so this is like a uh, Cliff's Notes version. Uh, George Hearst came from humble beginnings, and he managed to become a self-made millionaire. After graduating from Franklin County Mining School, he started working at a mine, which led to George owning a mine, which eventually led to him owning multiple mines, as well as multiple ranches in California. At one point, George was elected to the state assembly, but he failed to get reelected after he voted against the 13th Amendment, uh, which abolished slavery. The fact that he was against that, you know, was that a sign that George was trash? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was. I think Uh, so. There there was also the fact that he was, uh, when he was 41 years old, he married a 19-year-old girl. That'll do it. So, yeah, uh, George Hurst was trash. Uh, George and his wife Phoebe had one child, William Randolph Hurst, in 1863, which was basically the middle of the American Civil War. Uh, William had his father's insatiable hunger for power, so after being expelled from Harvard, William persuaded his father to let him run the San Francisco Examiner, a newspaper that George allegedly won in a poker game. And while the paper was struggling at the time, William completely turned it around, and long story short, William managed to go from running the single paper to running a massive media empire that included 28 newspapers, 13 magazines, 8 radio stations, and 2 movie studios. I could talk about William for a long time, but I won't because it's mostly boring. But the part we all want to hear is the tea. Two days before William's 40th birthday, He married a 21-year-old showgirl named Millicent Wilson. Like father, like son. Uh, William and Millicent had five sons, including George in 1904, William Randolph Jr. in 1908, 
John in 1909, and twins Randolph and David in 1915. When Millicent was pregnant with the twins, William saw a Broadway show featuring an 18-year-old actress named Marion Davies. William became completely enamored with Marion, and two years later they started a very public affair. You know, when Marion was 20 and William was 54. In 1919, William co-founded a movie studio so that he could cast Marion in the studio's projects. When William's mother died in 1919, William inherited his father's fortune as well as a ranch in California. The ranch covered 250,000 acres and eventually included a private zoo. William had a massive estate built on the property, which came to be known as Hearst Castle. In 1924, William and Marion moved to California together, which shockingly upset William's wife, Millicent, who was living in New York at the time. Millicent separated from William, but they remained legally married until William's death in April 1951. Six months after William's death, Marion who had been with him for 30-some years, married a sea captain named Horace Brown, and they remained together until Marion's death 10 years later. Uh, Prior to his death, William made some questionable choices. Uh, The Revenue Act of 1935 introduced the Wealth Tax, which was meant to help the poor during the Great Depression, for allowing the tax... William called President Roosevelt an anti-American communist in all of his newspapers and then started publishing articles written by Hitler. Uh, The public backlash somehow uh, forced William to live in seclusion for the rest of his life. Wowzer. Yeah. Right out the gate, William. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And just when you think that was all the tea that I had about William, there was an actress named Patricia Lake. She was born in June 1923. She grew up being told that she was the niece of Marion Davies. But later in life, Marion admitted to Patricia that William and Marion were her biological parents. Marion said uh, she went to France to give birth. And she gave the baby to her sister. William financially supported Patricia and left her a significant trust in his will. Patricia admitted the truth publicly on her deathbed in 1993. Wow. Uh, William Randolph Hearst was the inspiration for the 1941 movie Citizen Kane, which was basically the story of a media mogul who dies power hungry, hated and alone in a massive mansion. William hated the movie's existence, but was the most upset over a character that was supposed to represent Marion. In the movie, she was portrayed as an alcoholic, talentless actor who was kind of a prisoner in the Hearst character's massive estate. William was so upset about it, he banned all of his newspapers from covering the film or advertising it. Some of the theaters even refused to show the movie so they could align themselves with William because he was incredibly powerful at the time. In the end, the movie was nominated for nine Academy Awards and has since been cited as one of the best movies of all time. 
So William has five sons. The youngest two were twins. One of the twins was Randolph Apperson Hearst, known as Randy. He graduated from Harvard in 1938 and joined the family newspaper Empire, which was now called the Hearst Corporation. That same year, 1938, Randy married Catherine Wood Campbell, who was only about two years younger than Randy, which is a nice change from Randy's ancestors. Randy and Catherine had five daughters, which I find interesting. The one had five sons, so this guy, five daughters, including Catherine in 1939, Virginia in 1949, Patricia in 1954, Anne in 1955, and Victoria in 1956. Of course, the focus of today's episode is the third daughter, Patricia Campbell Hurst, known as Patty, who was born February 20th, 1954, in San Francisco, California. Of the five daughters, it was said that Patty was the one her father treated most like a son. He took her hunting, fishing, hiking. It was also said that Patty and her mother often butted heads, as Catherine wanted Patty to be more like her. Catherine was an upper-class Southern Belle type. She graduated from a seminary school in the 1930s, so she hoped her daughters would follow in her footsteps. And while in her late teens, Patty did attend several convent schools, however, she was thrown out of each of them, which caused a large rift between her and her mother. Patty grew up attending private Catholic schools in the 11th grade while attending Crystal Springs Uplands School. Patty developed a crush on the 23-year-old math teacher, Stephen Weed. Soon, Patty started showing up at Steve's house to ask him to tutor her, and soon the couple started a sexual relationship. Patty was 17 at the time. Patty earned enough credits to graduate at the end of her 11th year, and so she enrolled at Menlo College, where she earned a Best Student Award during her freshman year. Two years later, Stephen received a graduate fellowship and a teaching grant at the University of California, so he and Patty moved to a two-story townhouse in Berkeley. Patty then suggested that she was going to take some classes at the university. When she told Stephen that she was thinking maybe she wanted to be a veterinarian, Stephen bluntly told Patty that she'd never be good enough to master the science and math requirements, which, uh, shitty move, Stephen, shitty move. Patty enrolled in an art history program instead. But despite Stephen's lack of support in Patty's academic pursuits, the couple were engaged in December 1973, and it was, of course, published in the San Francisco Examiner. They said they planned to get married in the summer of 1974. After the engagement, they fell into a nightly routine that involved dinner, TV, studying, same thing every night. February 4th, 1974 seemed to be the same as all the others. Patty and Stephen had tuna fish sandwiches and chicken noodle soup for supper. Then they watched a Mission Impossible rerun on TV and then kind of went their separate ways in the building to study. Around 9.30 p.m., there was a knock at the door. When Stephen answered, a woman told him she had hit a car and asked if she could use their phone. Before Stephen could respond, 
two men with guns shoved their way into the apartment. They screamed at Stephen to get on the floor, which he did. But whenever Stephen would look up at them, they would kick him and hit him. The men then went to the kitchen where they found Patty. They tied her up, blindfolded her, and put a gag in her mouth. One of the men then demanded to know where the safe was, but Stephen told them there was no safe. Uh, so this made Stephen assume this was a robbery. Uh, so he told the would-be thieves, take whatever you want, just leave me and Patty alone. At one point, one of the men started hitting Stephen in the head with a bottle of wine. Bloodied, Stephen managed to get to his feet and headed out the door and started banging on his neighbor's door. One of the men threw Patty over his shoulder in like a fireman's type carry and put her in the trunk of an awaiting car before they drove off. Years later, Stephen said that three nights before Patty's abduction, a sketchy couple had shown up at their house asking about rentals in the area. At the time, Stephen didn't think anything of it because the area was known for petty crime. However, he now believes the couple had shown up to confirm that Patty lived there in anticipation of the abduction. So the Hearst family was so wealthy and influential that after Patty's abduction, the FBI went to the family, not the other way around. They didn't even have to be contacted. They just knew and they showed up. The FBI set up a command post at the Hearst house and awaited contact from the kidnappers. At the beginning, 104 FBI agents were put on the case. Imagine if even half that much effort got put into all disappearances and kidnapping cases, regardless as to the financial status of the victim. But I digress. On February 7th, three days after Patty's disappearance, a group known as the Symbionese Liberation Army, or SLA, issued a statement, or as they called it, a communique, stating, quote, On the aforestated date, Combat elements of the United Federated Forces of the Symbionese Liberation Army, armed with cyanide-loaded weapons, served an arrest warrant upon Patricia Campbell Hurst. In the communique, the SLA demanded that all their future communiques be published in every newspaper and read aloud on every TV news. They said that failure to do so would mean danger for the prisoner, Patty Hurst, the communique ended with, quote, death to the fascist insect that preys upon the life of the people. So who the hell were the Symbionese Liberation Army? Well, to understand them, you have to understand that point in time. During the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of anger and unrest in the middle and lower class populations, which was made worse by the Vietnam War, which had been ongoing since November 1955. In the mid-60s, the anger erupted into a series of race riots across the country, starting in Harlem in July 1964, after an off-duty police officer fatally shot a 15-year-old African-American kid named James Powell. An estimated 8,000 Harlem residents took to the streets. They broke windows, they looted businesses, started setting fires, the National Guard was brought in, and more than 460 people were arrested. 
Other riots followed, including the Watts riots in California in August 1965 and another in Detroit in 1966. Then after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in April 1968, there were riots in over 120 cities across America. But Berkeley, California seemed to be the epicenter of this angry protest movement where radicalized groups decided they needed to prepare to overthrow the government. They believed that an armed revolution was the only way to make the world a better place. And those radicals believed that prison symbolized everything that was wrong with American society, including violence, racism, and the oppression of poor people. So some radicals believed prisons were the place they needed to start to affect change. So some students from Berkeley went to the nearest prison, which is Vacaville, to interact with prisoners. That's where they met inmate Donald DeFries. Donald had dropped out of school in the ninth grade and moved from Cleveland to Buffalo, where he joined a street gang. He was soon arrested for stealing a car as well as stealing from parking meters, and he was sent to a state reformatory. After his release, he was moved to New Jersey, where he got married in 1963. A year later, his wife had him arrested for desertion. The couple reunited and eventually had three children together. Donald then moved his family to California, where he was arrested in 1967 after being found carrying a homemade bomb. He was given three years probation. Two years later, Donald and an accomplice were arrested for kidnapping the caretaker of a synagogue. They were acquitted. Donald was soon arrested again, this time in Cleveland, after police spotted him on the roof of a bank carrying an eight-inch dagger and two pistols. Donald paid $5,000 bond and skipped town and headed to California. A month later, Donald physically assaulted a sex worker stole a check from the woman's pocket, and got caught trying to cash it. The ordeal resulted in a shootout with police outside the bank. Donald was injured in the, in the shootout. In 1970, Donald was sentenced to 6 to 14 years in Vacaville. While there, Donald joined a group called the Black Cultural Association, which was meant to help prisoners prepare to reintegrate into society. The group was started in 1968 by a Berkeley professor named Colton Westbrook, who recruited Berkeley students to volunteer in his program, including anthropology student Willie Wolfe, who brought in his friend Russ Little. In December 1972, Donald was transferred to another prison for good behavior. Less than three months later, in March 1973, Donald escaped. <laughs> he went to Oakland, where he was hidden by his new friend, Willie Wolfe. And together, they formed the Symbionese Liberation Army, which also included Joe Romero, Camilla Hall, Nancy Ling Perry, Russ Little, and Patricia Saltizic, who went by Ms. Moon. Donald was the one who came up with the name for the group. He said it represented the symbiosis between students and prisoners. Donald was the only prisoner, so I felt that was a, an interesting choice. Uh, but Donald also came up with the group's logo, which featured a seven-headed cobra, 
each head representing a core value of the SLA, which also happens to align with the seven principles of Kwanzaa. These include self-determination, unity, creativity, collective work and responsibility, purpose, faith, and cooperative production. The SLA's ultimate goal was to, quote, unite all oppressed people into a fighting force and to destroy the system of the capitalist state and all its value systems. The SLA believed that they could truly bring about change in the world if they engaged in small-scale violence. But at first, they didn't really have any big plans. Then in November 1973, they saw a news report about Marcus Foster, the superintendent of the Oakland Unified School District. Marcus, who was the first African-American appointed to the role of superintendent in Oakland, had proposed to start a student ID card system in Oakland, which Marcus believed would reduce the number of non-students who were usually drug dealers hanging around school campuses. But Donald and the other members of the SLA believed that this ID card system was fascist, and therefore, Marcus had to tie. Which feels like a real leap. But um, in January 1974, the SLA added three new recruits, uh, which included Angela Atwood and married couple Bill and Emily Harris. Bill later said uh, he wasn't originally a political person until he served time in Vietnam. He struggled to adjust when they returned home. And he and his wife, Emily, moved to the Bay Area, where they started to get involved in political groups that led to them meeting members of the SLA. But just prior to that, on November 6th, while walking from a school board meeting to his car, With his deputy, Robert Blackburn, Marcus Foster and Robert were shot multiple times. Robert survived, but Marcus, who had been shot eight times at point-blank range, did not. He was 50 years old. Donald, Nancy, and Ms. Moon were the shooters, while Joe and Russ were the lookouts. On November 11th, the SLA released a statement to the press admitting to the crime and even added that the bullets they used were cyanide-tipped, which was not a detail that had been released publicly yet. But while the police knew the group that was responsible, they didn't know who the members were or their location, so they ended up with a lot of dead ends. Two months later, uh, on January 10th, 1974, Police did a routine stop of a vehicle that was being driven by Joe Ramiro and Russ Little when the cops approached the passenger side door and asked Joe to get out of the vehicle. He panicked and pulled a gun. There was a quick shootout, which somehow ended with no one getting hurt. Police then searched the vehicle and found leaflets from the SLA, as well as weapons that were later determined to have been used during Marcus Foster's murder. Joe Ramiro and Russ Little were arrested and charged with Foster's murder. Both refused to speak about the SLA. After they were caught, the rest of the group decided they needed to abandon their safe house and move on. But first, they soaked the place in gasoline and set it on fire to destroy any evidence. 
However, when they were leaving, they closed the garage door, which cut the oxygen off to the fire. So the fire died out and left lots of evidence for the police. Uh, There were multiple weapons, SLA leaflets, and even a list of potential kidnap victims. One of the names on that list, Patricia Hurst. The SLA wrote Patty's name down after they read her engagement announcement in the newspaper. At the time, the Hearst name was synonymous with wealth, and the SLA saw them as the enemy of the people. And while police discovered this potential threat less than a month before Patty was actually abducted, they never warned Patty or anyone else on that list, Uh, which I'm not a lawyer. Smells like a lawsuit to me. Yeah. Because <laughs> that uh, is wild to me. But the SLA members uh, later said they decided to move ahead with the plan to kidnap Patty as retaliation for Joe and Russ being arrested. Some members of the SLA wanted to respond to the arrest in a far more violent way, such as, you know, a murder. But Bill, Emily, and Angela, the newest recruits, suggested they just go with a simple kidnapping. They wanted to kidnap someone innocent because Joe and Russ were innocent and they liked the parallels. The SLA said they believed Patty was a symbolic target because she was the heiress of a media empire and they saw the media as an arm of the U.S. government. So the group did surveillance on the townhouse where Patty and her fiancé lived. They noticed the front door was blocked by the street, so they knew they wouldn't be seen if they went at night. Three cars were used. Willie and Ms. Moon were in one car as lookouts. Nancy and Emily were in another car. And Camilla drove the getaway car. So Donald, Angela, and Bill did the actual kidnapping. Bill was the one who carried Patty out of the house and placed her in the trunk of Camilla's car. Before they left the scene, Angela grabbed Patty's purse and Donald left a box of cyanide-tipped bullets on the floor, kind of as an SLA calling card. The entire ordeal lasted about four minutes. When Stephen began banging on the neighbor's door, a lot of other neighbors came out to see what was going on, so Donald shot at them. Nancy fired a few times before driving off with Emily. When Willie and Ms. Moon were mere blocks from the scene, they came upon a cop car who flagged them down. And while they thought the cop had heard the gunfire, it turns out he only stopped them to tell them to turn their headlights on. They turned their headlights on. The cops sent them on their way. In that moment, both Willie and Ms. Moon were armed and had been ready to fire on the officer if necessary. Half a mile from the scene, the three SLA vehicles pulled over and Patty was transferred to the back of a station wagon before being taken to the safe house. She was kept in a closet at that safe house for days. Stephen was in the hospital for five days due to his injuries After his release, he moved in with the Hearst family. The SLA later said that if Stephen hadn't kept looking at them, they never would have hit him at all. 
Police later found the getaway car abandoned on the side of the road. It had originally been stolen. The FBI then, of course, set up that command post at the Hearst house. On February 7th, the SLA's first communique was sent to local news station KPFA in an envelope along with the mobile oil credit card that was in Patty's purse. The communique listed the target as Patricia Campbell Hearst, daughter of Randolph A. Hearst, corporate enemy of the people. It said, quote, Should any attempt be made by authorities to rescue the prisoner or to arrest or harm any SLA elements, the prisoner is to be executed. It also added that all communications from this court must be published in full in all newspapers and all other forms of the media. Failure to do so will endanger the safety of the prisoner. So the SLA kidnaps Patty Hearst and then sends out a public statement admitting that they kidnapped Patty Hearst. However, they neglected to ask for anything or suggest how Patty might be returned. Their hope was to use Patty to get Joe Romero and Russ Little released from prison. But as rookie kidnappers, they outright forgot to demand anything. They wanted the kidnapping to spark a revolution. However, even if they had asked for what they wanted, they would have been denied because then President Nixon and then Governor Ronald Reagan refused to negotiate with terrorists as they believed giving in to the demands would make kidnapping a far more regular occurrence. But once the SLA realized they needed to ask for something, they had to come up with ideas as to what they were going to ask for, which is something you maybe whiteboard before you kidnap. Uh, in an unrelated thought, Bill Harris uh, suggested maybe they hijack, uh, hijack a truck of frozen turkeys and distribute them to the less fortunate. And then that idea kind of morphed into, well, why not use the kidnapping to get the food to those who need it? So a communique was released on February 12th, this time a voice recording by Donald DeFries, who uh, was going by the name SinQ at the time, because all SLA members had their own uh, fancy little nickname. Donald said, quote, before any forms of negotiations for the release of the subject prisoner can be initiated, an action of good faith must be shown on the part of the Hearst family. This gesture is to be in the form of food to the needy and the unemployed, and to which the following instructions are directed to be followed to the letter. Uh, Donald specifically requested that Randy Hurst provide $70 worth of meat, vegetables, and dairy products to all people in California who were less fortunate, including anyone with welfare cards, food stamp cards, disabled veteran cards, social security pension cards, medical cards, all those on parole or probation, and anyone recently released from prison. He asked that the food be distributed in seven of the biggest cities in the state, and that at least five stores be used as distribution points so the lineups wouldn't have to be long. Also in that tape recording uh, was Patty, who told her parents that she was unharmed and being cared for, 
uh, but that her parents needed to cooperate with the demands. She said, quote, do what they say, dad, and just do it quickly. And while 70 per person is admirable, it is highly unrealistic. I assume they didn't do the math because that would have been approximately $400 million <laughs> to pull that off, um, which is money that the Hearsts just didn't have. They were incredibly wealthy, but most of their money was tied up in assets. Not unlike Robert Maxwell back in episode 129, he was seen as incredibly wealthy, but he secretly had debt and just no liquid assets. In this case, Randy Hearst had some cash, but not hundreds of millions of dollars worth. So Randy agreed he would give two million, half a million would come from his own pocket, and the rest would come from the Hearst Corporation. To organize the food distribution, a social service called People in Need was set up almost overnight. The initial food rollout was chaotic, but it seemed kind of to work out in some of the locations. But the Oakland rollout was a clusterfuck, if I may. It was supposed to start at noon. People were lining up by dawn. There was miscommunication and the trucks didn't leave the warehouse until after 1 p.m. So the crowds started growing impatient and started spreading into the streets. So by the time the first truck actually showed up, there were so many people in the street that the truck was blocked and couldn't get to where it was supposed to go. The driver then laid on the horn. That caused someone in the crowd to throw a bottle at the driver through his open window. That then sparked a full-on riot the other trucks showed up. People forcibly grabbed the food. Some started standing on top of the truck and were throwing food out into the crowd. I want to remind you some of this food was stuff like eggs. Just throwing it out in the crowd. It was chaos. And in the end, then Governor Ronald Reagan gave a public interview where he said he hoped that anyone who took food from that program would get botulism. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Which is shocking that he was uh, it's so specific. such a popular person. <laughs> it's so specific. Like, that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, I just... <laughs> Wowza. So, in the next communique on February 16th, Donald asked the Hearst family to distribute an additional $4 million worth of food. Patty again added to the tape, saying she was being treated well, begged her parents to comply with what they were asking. Patty then said she was absolutely alive and that she didn't like people who were acting otherwise. She then added, quote, Mom should get out of her black dress. That doesn't help at all, which was in reference to Catherine Hurst wearing a black dress during a recent press conference because she was really, once her daughter was gone, she started acting like she was in mourning. And Patty was like, are you fucking kidding? I'm alive. Which, uh, you know, I see both I, sides. I, so do I. I see, I see the, I'm trying to go for this. 
I'm trying to be respectful and show that I am not handling this well. But on the other side, it's like, I'm not dead. Yeah. Anyhow. But while Patty was a hostage, she was given a small TV and a radio so she could see all the coverage of her own case, including all of her parents' interviews. And at first, Patty was kept in the closet, blindfolded with the door shut, and a radio was blasting all the time so she wouldn't be able to hear the voices of her captors. But after a couple of days, they turned the radio off, they left the door open, three members of the group were assigned to interact with Patty so she wouldn't be able to identify everyone after she was released, because that's the thing. The entire time, the whole plan was, she's going to be released. Which is why she was kept blindfolded. She can't see our faces because we're going to release her. Those assigned to her were Nancy Ling Perry, Angela Atwood, and Willie Wolf. At first, Patty feared them because she knew about Marcus Foster's murder and she knew what they were capable of. But eventually she came to trust them as they explained to her the idea of a revolution and the selfishness of the upper class. They told Patty that women weren't second-class citizens, but people of their own who could make their own decisions. Patty was given SLA leaflets to read so she could try and understand where her captors were coming from. They even showed Patty that they weren't the enemy by teaching her how to use a shotgun. Patty's father, Randy, responded to that $4 million donation request with a statement read at his front door. He came out of the house. He said, quote, The size of the latest demand of the SLA is beyond my financial capability. Therefore, the matter is now out of my hands. He then turned and walked back into the house. Man, a few words. Yeah. Patty, who watched the brief press conference from a closet at the safe house, was upset and said she felt abandoned by her father. So in the next communique, which arrived March 9th, 33 days after Patty's abduction, Patty sounded really pissed. She said she knew her father had enough money and she didn't believe he was doing everything possible to get her back. Patty then begged her mother to sway Randy to comply with that $4 million request. She said, quote, your silence has jeopardized my safety. And then she added, quote, you said it was out of your hands. What you should have said was that you washed your hands of it. On March 13th, the SLA decided to change safe houses and move into a studio apartment on Golden Gate Avenue, which just so happens to be the very same street as the FBI office. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was their way of hiding in plain sight, which, uh, I mean, I, it, they weren't found there, so well done. Uh, at some point, the police had no idea where to find the SLA or Patty. Investigators worked with four different psychics to try and find a trace of Patty. There were no sufficient leads. The same day the SLA moved, Governor Reagan announced he had appointed Catherine Hurst to a 16-year term on the Board of Regents, which is a governing board of the University of California, who were trying to crack down on protests at Berkeley. This decision made the SLA and Patty livid. They were especially upset that Catherine was willingly working with Reagan after his deplorable comment about botulism. 
Uh, Patty was so angry, she sent a communique to the press on April 3rd, almost two months after her abduction. In the tape, Patty said, quote, Mom, Dad, I would like to comment on your efforts to supposedly secure my safety. The people in need giveaway was a sham. You attempted to deceive the people. You were playing games, stalling for time, time which the FBI used in their attempts to assassinate me and the SLA elements. Quick footnote. No, they didn't. There was no attempted assassination whatsoever. Uh, Patty added, quote, my mother's acceptance of the appointment to a second term as a UC regent, as you may well know, would have caused my immediate execution had the SLA been less than together about their political goals. They didn't, they kidnapped you and didn't ask for a ransom right away. They weren't, they were less than together. I'll say that. They were. I'll just say what it is. Yeah. Uh, then Patty added a moment to her fiance, Stephen Weed. She said, quote, Stephen, I know you're beginning to realize there is no such thing as neutrality in the time of war. You don't know what's happened since then. I have changed, grown. I've become conscious and can never go back to the life we led before. And in a shocking turn of events, Patty said, quote, I have been given the choice of being released in a safe area or joining the forces of the Symbionese Liberation Army and fighting for my freedom and the freedom of all oppressed people. I have chosen to stay and fight. Wowzer. Well, breaking it, what is the moment that many of us may have perceived of Patty Hearst? have another drink hit the can and i guarantee we're going to come back with more on this episode and christy's going to get this vibration they go wow wow maybe this wasn't what i thought that's what we do here on tcac never called the show by its initials before get a drink hit the can we'll be back with more about patty hurst on this episode of true crime and cocktails Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We are, of course, discussing Patty Hearst. Before the break, I teased that maybe there's more coming with nothing to base that on. Except my hunch, because I know Christy Oxborough brings the goods. So I throw it back to you. Where are we at? Uh, well, better to have a hunch than a hunchback. I'm so sorry. I appreciate that. 
But you'd be adorable, by the way. With a little hump? Yeah, you would. I would. You as like a 95-year-old just shuffling in slippers and a muumuu with a slight hump. I mean, adorable. It's you and me sitting at a piano. Miami, Miami. Yeah. Anyhow, fuck. Doesn't take much to distract me. So, two months after Patty Hearst was first abducted, she publicly announced that she had joined her abductors and become a member of the Symbionese Liberation Army, or SLA. But two weeks prior to that, the SLA moved to a new safe house and realized they were kind of short on money, and having an extra mouth to feed was turning out to be too much for them, financially speaking. So they told Patty they were going to let her go. But Patty told them she didn't want to go home. She was frustrated with her parents and their response to her kidnapping. So Patty asked if she could join them. They accepted her as one of their own, and Patty even started a romantic relationship with Willie Wolf, who was a physician's son who had gone to a prep school before attending Berkeley, where he studied anthropology. As a sign of his affection, Willie gave Patty a necklace of an Olmec monkey, which is like a... He he got it somewhere in New Mexico at like some sort of dig at school. I don't know. The point is, he gave her this necklace from the best I could tell. He had one as well, and they wore matching ones, I think. Anyhow, it'll come up later. But if Patty was going to join them, that didn't exactly help with their money problems. Not to mention the communique had said that Patty was now on their side, but the SLA wanted a way to prove that she was on their side. So in a case of two birds, one stone, the group decided to rob a bank. But to get their point across, they specifically chose a bank that had security cameras and made sure that Patty was front and center the whole time. On April 24th, 79 days after Patty was taken, they headed to the Hibernia Bank in San Francisco in two groups. Emily, Bill, Angela, and Willie sat in a car across the street. Camilla as the getaway driver, while Donald, Patty, Ms. Moon, and Nancy were the inside team. Around 9.50 a.m., the four entered the bank. It had 18 employees and six customers in it at the time. They disarmed the security guard, and Donald yelled, quote, This is a holdup. The first motherfucker who don't lay on the ground gets shot in the head. Coming in hot. Coming in hot. The bank's branch manager heard the commotion from a break room on the second floor, and he pushed the silent alarm at 9.51 a.m. The group was in and out quickly. No one was hurt. They made off with more than $10,000. Patty carried a shotgun, which she had been trained to use. When security camera photos were released showing Patty holding the gun, Patty's family publicly stated that Patty had been coerced and that she had been the victim of mind control. SLA member Bill Harris later said that Patty was 100% an equal member of their group. So was she coerced? Or was she a willing participant? Well, that is something we are going to go back and forth on throughout this episode. And it's a tough question to answer because in the end, it simply comes down to who do you believe? 
But on April 24th, the seventh communique from the SLA was released. Patty referred to herself as Tanya. Again, all the SLA members got their own name. Um, Tanya said, quote, my comrades and I, showing again, she's linked with them. Um, she said that they took $10,660.02 from the Sunset branch of the Hibernia Bank. Donald had suggested she add the two cents to the total just so that it would confuse the bank auditors. And I like that just at this point, Donald's like, fuck it, chaos. Let's cause some chaos, even to poor auditors. Uh, Patty also said, quote, I was positioned so I could hold bank customers and employees on the floor. My gun was loaded and at no time did any of my comrades intentionally point their guns at me. Patty then said the idea of her being brainwashed was ridiculous because she was now a soldier in the People's Army. She then rattled off a Spanish phrase, which translates to fatherland or death, we shall triumph. On May 3rd, the police raided the SLA safe house on Golden Gate Avenue, but the group had already left. Inside, they found the keys to one of the getaway cars that was used during the robbery, as well as some of the clothes that were seen on the security footage. According to the building manager, the group had moved out one week earlier. While at a new place in Compton, one of their vans got a parking ticket. So on May 16th, 101 days after Patty was taken, Bill and Emily decided to pay the parking ticket while running a few errands. They carried an envelope of cash, which they planned to mail while they were out. Patty asked if she could tag along, and they agreed. Patty waited in the van while Bill and Emily went inside Mel's Sporting Goods around 3.50 p.m. While looking around, Bill picked up a shotgun bandolier, but then he worried it would be a suspicious purchase, so he put the item back on the shelf. However, a clerk had seen Bill wandering around with the item, but didn't see Bill put it back. So when Bill left the store, the clerk chased after him, asking Bill to empty his pockets. The clerk got Bill to the ground and started putting handcuffs on him, which is wild that that was the next step. Uh, Patty, who had been sitting in the van with the keys to the vehicle the whole time on her own. Uh, she also was sitting there with multiple weapons. She sees that uh, Bill's getting pinched. And so instead of just laying low or trying to take off on her own, she pulls out a gun and starts firing. She fired off an entire magazine and then grabbed a second gun and fired off another 30-round clip. At the gunfire, the clerk ran while Bill and Emily headed for the van and the three took off. Hmm. So... They needed to change vehicles, so they came across a guy in a Pontiac around 4.10 p.m. They approached him and just simply asked for the car. The guy said no. Emily then shoved a gun in his face and told him to get out of the fucking car. He did. Unfortunately, the car only made it about a block and a half before it died. But nearby, there was a group of guys with another vehicle. So they approached the guys, 
told them they were members of the SLA, they were being followed by the police, and the guys just gave them the keys. A few hours later, Bill, Emily, and Patty continued to drive around as they believed they couldn't go back to the safe house just yet. Later that night, they came across a van that was for sale. Emily approached the house and asked the vehicle's owner if she could take it for a test drive. 18-year-old Tom Matthews agreed, and after a block, she pulled over and Bill and Patty got in. Tom later said he didn't immediately recognize Patty because she was wearing a dark wig at the time. Tom also said he was never scared because they all just kind of seemed really nice. They stopped somewhere to pick up a hacksaw and Tom helped cut the handcuff that was hooked to uh, Bill's wrist. Tom later told police that Patty proudly told him that she had saved her comrades. Emily and Patty later pretended to hitchhike so they could steal a new car and then give Tom the keys to his van and let him go on his way. Around 10.30 p.m., a revolver discovered at the scene of the sporting goods shooting was officially linked to Emily Harris. And shortly after that, police located the abandoned van the shooters had used. Inside the van was a parking ticket, which gave police the address to the safe house. The FBI asked the new police unit Special Weapons and Tactics a.k.a. SWAT, to accompany them to the address, believing the SLA would be inside. Fun fact, the first SWAT team was created in Los Angeles after the 1965 Watts riots. The purpose of the new team was to specifically help during violent uprisings. Also, if you'd put a gun to my head, I could not have told you what SWAT stood for prior to this, so... The more you know. That would have been a smarter way of doing it, yes. Uh, So, all that was found at the safe house was a radio tuned to police calls, some SLA leaflets, and more than a dozen weapons and over 4,000 rounds of ammo. No member of of the group was in sight. Bill, Emily, and Patty, realizing that they had left that ticket in the vehicle, realizing the safe house was blown, knew they had to hide somewhere, and that it was smart to hide in somewhere highly populated, again, hide in plain sight. So they went to Disneyland. (laughs) I highly doubt they went on the teacups, but that's not the point. That would have been them missing out. So unbeknownst to the police, the remaining six members of the SLA which included Donald, Angela, Ms. Moon, Camilla, Willie, and Nancy, had gone to a house around the corner from the safe house at 1466 East 54th Street. Donald told the occupants that his friends were being pursued by the police and that they needed a place to stay. He offered them a hundred bucks and they let uh, the people in the house let them in. While the police were surveilling the area, a neighbor approached them to say they saw a group of people enter that house. So at 5.54 p.m., police used a bullhorn to say the house was surrounded and that the occupants should surrender. Eight minutes later, an eight-year-old boy and a man in his 30s left the house. Police asked the man who was inside. The man said no one. They asked the kid. The kid said, and I quote, 
a bunch of white people with guns. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, When the rest of the occupants refused to come out, the SWAT team fired two cans of tear gas into the house at 5.53 p.m. The SLA members immediately responded by yelling, hey, pig, smoke this, and then just a barrage of gunfire. The police responded with their own gunfire and sent in even more tear gas, but there was a gas can in the house that got hit with some of the gunfire that spilled gas on the floor, and that second round of tear gas hit that gasoline and ignited it, and that house just went up in flames. At the sight of the flames, the police used the bullhorn again to ask for a ceasefire and said no one would be harmed if they left the building. A woman in her 30s, who somehow managed to be asleep up to that point, despite all the commotion going on, ran out of the house, but the six SLA members remained inside. Thick black smoke poured out of the house, but no member of the SLA attempted to surrender. The entire event was broadcast live on TV, and Bill, Emily, and Patty watched the entire thing unfold in real time. The entire event lasted 62 minutes. 23 homes in the area were damaged in the shootout. However, no innocent bystanders or police officers were injured in the event. All six SLA members in the home died during the shootout. Nancy Ling Perry ran out of the house wearing a gas mask and holding a pistol in each hand. She was shot and killed. Nancy, who was known to the SLA as Fahiza, was 26 years old. The bodies of the other five were later found in the house. Donald DeFries, a.k.a. Sinew, was 30 years old. Camilla Hall, known as Gabby, was 29. Angela Atwood, known as Jelena, was 25. Patricia Saltizic, known as Ms. Moon, was 24. And Willie Wolf, known as Cujo, was 23. Police recovered 18 weapons and two pipe bombs from the house. The LAPD and SWAT later claimed they were outgunned. But I I don't know. I mean, yes, the SLA seemed to have better guns because they had far less people in the house shooting than the LAPD and FBI had. However, it was estimated that the LAPD fired 5,300 rounds in that 62 minutes. Wow. The, the SLA fired between three and 4,000 rounds. So were their guns more powerful? Absolutely. But in the end, there was still more power behind the, the FBI and LAPD. Uh, not to mention, the LAPD, again, in 62 minutes, fired 83 tear gas canisters. Which, to me, feels like overkill. But, you know, I'm just a civilian. What do I know? So, Bill Harris, who at this point was in Disneyland with uh, his wife Emily and Patty Hearst, he later said that Patty was devastated after Willie's death. 
and that his death ignited her desire to retaliate against the police. But with few resources and very little money, the group knew they needed a new plan. After a few weeks of hiding out, they returned to L.A. on May 27th and got themselves a new safe house, new safe house in East Oakland. But now the SLA was only three members. Bill Harris, known as Tico, Emily Harris, known as Yolanda, and Patty Hurst, known as Tanya. So they started looking for some new allies, which they found at a political rally at Berkeley on June 2nd. Kathleen Celaya, known as Kathy, gave a very strongly worded memorial about her best friend, Angela Atwood. Kathy said the SLA members were, quote, viciously attacked and murdered by 500 pigs in L.A. while the whole nation watched. Kathy gave the group some money and told them to keep fighting. In a communique released on to the media on June 7th, Bill said the SLA had been murdered and he blamed the fascist pig media. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, commu- the communique was their way of memorializing their fallen comrades. Uh, Patty, a.k.a. Tanya, spoke briefly about all six who had died. Uh, she said she loved Willie and that neither of them had loved another the way they loved each other. And this is a quote from the tape. Quote, probably because our relationship wasn't based on Uh, bourgeois fucked up values, attitudes, and goals. She said that she had been, quote, ripped off by the pigs when they murdered Cujo, ripped off in the same way that thousands of sisters and brothers in this fascist country have been ripped off by the people they love, of the people they love, sorry. Uh, We mourn together and the sound of gunfire becomes sweeter. Again, nothing will make me take her less seriously than to have a someone who grew up incredibly wealthy talk about all the bad things that the incredibly wealthy have done to to the rest of us you know mm-hmm. like that i'm one of you you're not patty anyhow uh patty also added that she died in that fire on 54th street but she was now reborn Patty promised that she would continue to fight and ended saying, quote, I would never choose to live the rest of my life surrounded by pigs like the Hursts. And while the group was determined to continue, again, they had no money. They needed to stay hidden. So Kathy Celaya put them in touch with Jack Scott, the sports editor for Ramparts magazine, who was looking to write a story about the SLA shootout. Jack was blindfolded and taken to a secret location where he was introduced to Bill, Emily, and Patty. Jack said he wanted to tell their story and said in exchange for that, he would get them out of the state. Jack and Patty rode with Jack's parents. Before they hit the highway, Jack's father pulled over and told Patty she didn't have to do this. She could absolutely return home. They would take her home, no questions asked. Patty, allegedly, turned to him and said, quote, get the fuck back on the road and start driving. They made their way to New York, where Jack and Patty uh, 
or Jack put Patty at his family's childhood farmhouse. Uh, since Patty wasn't allowed to go in public, Jack's wife, Mickey, brought Patty anything she asked for, which was basically daily coffee and the New York Times. When Mickey would ask why she wanted the paper, Patty allegedly said she was using it to find names for the group's new hit list. Jack flew back to California so that he could bring Bill and Emily to New York, leaving Patty alone at the farmhouse for several days. Once Bill and em Emily arrived, they were also joined by 32-year-old Wendy Yoshi Yoshimura, who was wanted on charges of accessory to a bombing. Wendy's boyfriend, Willie Brandt, had been convicted of a bombing in Alameda County, and since bomb-making materials were discovered in Wendy's house, she was later charged with being an accessory. But of course, Wendy skipped town before she could be arrested. So soon, even Jack's money started running out, so Jack suggested instead of just an article about the SLA, he should write an entire book. He recorded interviews with Bill, Emily, and Patty, and then all four of them took turns transcribing the tapes into what would become the official SLA story. The tapes included such quotes from Patty as, quote, We fully realize we cannot win a revolutionary war without armed struggle. And, quote, As women, our primary focus was on becoming strong female guerrillas. Guerrillas in this case, of course, meaning the freedom fighter, soldier type, not the largest living primates type. Uh, after the book was transcribed, Bill, Emily, and Patty felt like the book sounded fake. Uh, Bill's quote, I believe, was he said it sounded hokey and they just didn't like it. They felt like it made the SLA beliefs seem kind of like a joke. So they refused to give Jack the manuscript and then they destroyed all the recordings. Jack, of course, absolutely pissed. He spent all this time with them. He got them out of the state like they asked. He did all of these things for essentially nothing. So the group was told to leave. The SLA members, along with Wendy, decided it was time to head back to California. Jack agreed to take Patty as far as Vegas, where he left her in a hotel room where she waited for two days before being picked up by Kathy Celia's boyfriend, Jim Kilgore, who drove Patty to Sacramento. In Sacramento, Kathy's younger brother, Steve, another Steve, this case, Steve Celia, and a friend named Mike Borton agreed to hide Patty, Bill, and Emily. And soon, in what seemed to be a typical Patty fashion, Patty and Steve Celia started to date. The members of the SLA were all living under assumed names, so police were still having a hard time locating them. That is, until Jack Scott's brother, Walter, got drunk and went to the FBI to say Patty Hearst had been staying at his childhood home. So police go to the house, they search, they manage to find fingerprints belonging to Wendy Yoshimura. Before the group had left the house, they wiped down every surface in that house. However, during the stay, Wendy discovered a spider on her bed. She freaked out, as we all have, 
she moved the mattress and discovered a small hole under the mattress. And so she panicked and thought, oh my God, a spider, the spider's going to get in the mattress. So she took some newspaper and rolled it up and shoved it in that small hole to prevent the spider from getting in there, which all of it sounds like one of my deepest nightmares. Police found Wendy's fingerprints on that newspaper oh, wow. that was rolled up and shoved in the mattress. So I have to say, kudos for that level of police work. because That was very impressive. So this was the first time police were able to link Wendy with the SLA. So they knew Wendy's boyfriend, Willie Brandt, was in jail so they checked the prison log to see who all has visited this boyfriend. And so that's how they got the names Kathy Celaya, Kathy's sister Josephine Celaya, and Steve Celaya. Without realizing that the police were on their trail, the SLA decided to replenish their funds by robbing another bank. And by bank, I mean banks, uh, as in two. The first was the Guild Savings and Loan in Sacramento on February 25th, 1975. Patty did carry a loaded weapon throughout the robbery, and the group walked away with $3,700, which is equivalent to about $21,000 in 2023. And since the robbery went off without a hitch, they decided to do one more. But this time, they wanted to be sure that there were no security cameras. So after some surveillance... Bill and Emily Harris chose the Crocker National Bank in Carmichael, California. Jim Kilgore, Mike Borton, Emily Harris, and Kathy Celaya agreed to go inside. Steve Celaya and Bill Harris waited in a backup car outside. Patty Hurst and Wendy Yoshimura waited in a third vehicle. So on April 21st, 1975, the members of the inside team waited in line behind three customers, which included a mother of four named Myrna Opsal. When the bank opened at 10 a.m., they all walked in and the SLA immediately started screaming at people to get down. During the commotion, Emily took the safety off her gun. For whatever reason, it accidentally discharged and Myrna was shot in the stomach. Bank employees rushed to get towels from the bathroom, but they couldn't get the bleeding to stop, and Myrna did not survive. She was 42 years old. In the state of California, if you're an accessory in a felony that involves a death, you and everyone that's involved is charged with murder. Whether you were responsible for it or not, so technically... Every SLA member that was at that scene, both in the bank and outside, should have been charged with murder. Would they ever face those charges? The answer to that is coming up later in our show. So the SLA managed to make off with about $15,000 before the police arrive. After Myrna's body was removed from the crime scene, the bank employees were left to clean up the blood, which is horrifying to think about. And speaking of horrifying, uh, after some brief downtime following Myrna's murder, the SLA decided to head to San Francisco, where they decided they should probably take their political activism to the next level. 
you know, by getting involved in bombings. Why? Because apparently at the time, bombing was all the rage for activists. Between January 1974 and April 1975, there were 4,330 bombings in the United States. Again, these groups truly believed the only way they could make a difference was through violence. So the SLA started making bombs, and not just any bombs. These were massive, three-inch by 12-inch pipe bombs full of three-quarter-inch concrete nails. You know, the only reason you add something like that is just to maximize the injuries and the damage. The SLA said the bombs were in retaliation for their six fallen comrades. On August 5th, Patty placed a bomb under a police car in front of a police station in San Francisco. Fortunately, the bomb ended up being a dud, and it didn't go off. Then on August 20th, the group placed two bombs at the Marin County Courthouse. They put one under a cop car and a second one at the doorway of the building. The cop car bomb was set to go off first in the thought that it would draw people outside so that people would get caught in the blast of the second bomb. Fortunately, the bombs went off in the wrong order, so no one was hurt. Two days later, they placed a bomb under an LAPD squad car that was parked outside an IHOP. Yet again, there was a problem with the bomb, and it didn't go off. So I think we can all agree the SLA had become a real liability. Their lack of concern over human lives was just horrifying at best. But the police still struggled to find them. However, since police had linked Wendy Yoshimura to Kathy Salaya, they started surveilling Kathy and they found she had an associate named Patricia McCarthy. So they started following Patricia McCarthy which brought them to an apartment complex at 625 Morse. The building's manager identified Kathy, Jim Kilgore, and Mike Borton as a crew he had recently hired to paint his building. When the crew left the building, the police followed them to another building at 288 Presida. There, they discovered Bill and Emily Harris. Bill and Emily were arrested on September 18th, 591 days after Patty Hearst was abducted. Inside that apartment, police discovered weapons, bombs, and ammunition. Police then went back to 625 Morse, where they discovered Wendy Yoshimura and Patty Hearst sitting at the kitchen table. At the sight of the cops, Patty made a run for the bedroom which is where the group kept their weapons. The cops threatened to kill Wendy if Patty didn't come back, so she came back into the room. Was that extreme? Yes. Was the fact that they held a gun to Wendy's head to get Patty to respond also extreme? Absolutely. I do not justify their behavior. I just think at this point, the cops were just fucking over it. The entire Hearst ordeal. All of it. I absolutely don't blame them for being over it. Patty and Wendy were both arrested, and when Steve Salaya pulled up to the house, he was also arrested. Jim Kilgore, Mike Borton, Kathy Salaya, and her sister Josephine were all missing in action. 
when they arrived at the police station, there was press everywhere. Again, this has been going on for 591 days, so of course the press is going to be there. To show that the arrest hadn't gotten her down, Patty was all smiles, and then she gave like a fist salute, like the petulant child that she was. And this is when Christy starts turning on, on Patty Hearst. It happens. So during her first interview with police, Patty was asked what her occupation was. She said, urban gorilla. Again, not the primate type. During her first, that same first interview, Patty claimed she had grown resentful of Stephen Weed's patronizing attitude towards her. She said at the time of her abduction, part of her had been plotting a way of escaping from their relationship, and the other part, quote, was smiling for engagement photos and cooking dinner and playing out various aspects of a role that I hated. When asked if she'd been brainwashed, Patty said, quote, I couldn't believe anyone would come up with such bullshit. I feel the term brainwashing has meaning only when one is referring to the process which begins in the school system and the process whereby the people are conditioned to passively take their place in society as slaves to the ruling class. Again, the ruling class, huh? I can't. Anyhow. When asked about the Hibernia bank robbery, the first one that Patty was involved with, Patty said they committed the robbery for two reasons. One, they needed money. And two, they needed to prove that Tanya was alive and her claims of joining the SLA weren't bullshit. And finally, when asked about Willie Wolf, a.k.a. Cujo, Patty described him as a beautiful and gentle man. I only mention that one because it's going to come into play shortly. On September 22nd, Patty spoke with her friend Trish Tobin for the first time since her abduction. Trish told Patty about some upcoming ski trip she was taking, and Patty simply responded to Trish that her politics have changed. Patty started writing love letters to Steve Salaya, telling him she wanted to overthrow the government which uh, involved her spelling America with three Ks instead of a C, which is a choice. That, yeah. You know, I mean, again, badass, right? Anyhow, Patty's former fiance, Stephen Weed, tried to see her, but Patty refused to see him. To this day, Patty and Stephen have not seen or spoken to each other since Patty's abduction. In 1974. Wow. I find it wild, given that they were engaged to be married when they last saw each other. They never officially broke up. They just kind of drifted apart. Technically, Patty did tell Stephen she was a different person in one of those SLA communiques. So maybe she considered that the breakup? I don't know. But... First up in line of Patty's charges was the Hibernia bank robbery, a.k.a. the first one she participated in as a member of the SLA. The trial started in February 1976, exactly two years to the day after she'd been abducted. One member of her defense team was F. Lee Bailey, 
You might remember that old coot from the O.J. Simpson trial. If you don't, check out episode 71, Nicole Brown Simpson, for a refresher. I warn you, it's a long one. So Patty goes on trial for bank robbery that included video footage of Patty participating in said robbery. So what on earth is her defense going to be? According to her lawyers, Patty had been brainwashed, or legally speaking, a victim of coercive persuasion and forced to commit the crime. Three different psychiatrists were brought in to testify for the defense. One specialized in research on prisoners of war who were held for years and then managed to come out of it with sympathy for their captors, similar to Stockholm Syndrome, if you were. Uh, Is it possible members of the SLA brainwashed Patty into joining them, knowing that Patty joining their cause would do better things for them than the abduction ever could? Patty's lawyers claimed the SLA planned all along to indoctrinate Patty. And while I'm not an expert, I don't think that indoctrination was ever a part of their plan. Yes, when Patty was first taken, she was blindfolded, she was put in a closet, they blasted music so she couldn't hear them speak. And since Patty knew who the group was and what they were capable of, she was terrified. But they didn't let her see their faces for over a month, because according to the surviving members, they always intended to let her go. According to those members, and Patty herself in one of the tape recordings, they offered to let her go. But she requested to stay and join them. And now here we are at a moment that I referenced earlier. Who do you believe? A 19-year-old girl with a family reputation to protect or the people who abducted her? According to Patty, she was raped and tortured by her captors. But according to the SLA, which at the time consisted of two men and six women, the only sex that occurred was consensual between Patty, Patty's two relationships with members, Willie Wolf and Steve Celaya. When she was first arrested, Patty wrote love letters to Steve Celaya and gave an interview stating she was a willing member of the SLA. But during the trial, Patty's lawyers said it was all a ruse because Patty was afraid that Emily Harris might hurt her if... Uh, Patty was to say something else. But then it was pointed out that when Patty did all of these things, Emily Harris wasn't anywhere near her, to which the one specific psychiatrist said, oh, well, I mean, that proves how strong of a hold Emily had on Patty, that Patty was terrified without Emily even being there. I I can't. Uh, I honestly just don't buy it. I believe Patty was likely terrified at the beginning. I absolutely believe that. But there were multiple times throughout her abduction she could have taken off or gone to the police during the Mel's Sporting Goods shooting, which, to be clear, Patty started. Patty was left alone in a vehicle with keys. She could have driven off right then and there. Or when Bill came out of the store and was being arrested, she could have sat back and watched it happen and then just slowly drove off on her own. But in that moment, she saw someone put handcuffs on Bill, a man she considered her comrade. So she pulled out a gun and fired off 30 rounds, picked up a second gun and did the same. Then there were a few days she was left at Jack Scott's farmhouse for for days on her own. 
One could argue that might have been in the middle of nowhere and she had no way of leaving. But what about when Jack dropped Patty off in Vegas and left her at a motel for two days before her ride showed up? She could have easily left. She could have called the police. She could have called her family. She could have done something. And look, we are firm believers in victims on this show. So for one side to say that Willie Wolf raped her while the other side say that Patty was genuinely in love with Willie, it's tough. I'm not saying that Patty was lying. It's just hard to believe her side when Patty had that Olmec monkey necklace that Willie had given her. She had it in her purse at the time of her arrest. Willie had the same necklace that was discovered under his body after the fire in May 1974. A woman keeping a token or gift from a man who raped her just seems unlikely. Again, I'm not saying one way or the other. I'm just saying it just feels weird. But the jury wasn't buying it either. So F. Lee Bailey made the awful choice of putting Patty on the witness stand. Patty said she was brutalized and raped for 56 days following her abduction. But when Patty was cross-examined, she refused to answer any questions. So she just pleaded the fifth and said, I refuse to answer, which she said 42 separate times in her cross-examination, which kind of made the jury believe Patty might have something to hide. So after deliberating for a day, the jury found Patty Hearst guilty of the Hibernia bank robbery, and in September 1976, Patty was sentenced to seven years. F. Lee Bailey said that the Patty Hearst case was the worst case of his career, which is wild, coming from a man who defended not only O.J. Simpson, but also the Boston Strangler. Oh, right. Uh, Bailey even claimed that at the time of Patty's case, Patty Hearst was more unpopular than the Boston Strangler, a.k.a. Albert DeSalvo, who assaulted and murdered 13 women in the early 1960s. The guilty verdict in Patty's case made the public relieved to see that money didn't get in the way of justice. However, that relief may have come too soon. During her initial arrest, Patty was also charged with the shooting at Mel's Sporting Goods, and the trial was set for March 1977. Patty's lawyers pushed to get her released between the trials, which is not a thing, especially when the suspect in question had just been found guilty of another crime and sentenced to years in prison. And yet, somehow, the judge allowed it. Patty was released on a million-dollar bail on November 19th, but there was a provision that she had to be protected by a security team at all times. And the judge said that that security team would be paid for by the Hearst family. So the Hearsts paid for a 20-person security team, which included an officer who had been hand-chosen by the LAPD police chief himself. The chief chose 31-year-old Bernard Shaw, who was a Vietnam veteran with a 15-year exemplary record as a police officer. Bernard was also married to a woman named Valerie. They had two children, 8-year-old Thomas and 3-year-old Heather. 
the Archdiocese of San Francisco even named Bernard the Catholic Man of the Year. So with all these glowing reviews, Bernard couldn't possibly do anything questionable, right? Well, Bernard met Patty on November 19, 1976, and in June 1977, Bernard's wife Valerie filed for separation because her husband started having an affair with Patty. And no, this isn't romantic like something plucked out of the movie The Bodyguard, which stars Whitney Houston. For more information on Whitney, check out episode 74. At the time of the affair, Patty was 22. Bernard was 31. Not a crazy difference, but he was married with children and working for Patty's family at the time. Valerie filed for separation seven months after Bernard met Patty. And five months after that, Valerie amended the petition from separation to dissolution of marriage. On May 9th, 1977, Patty pleaded no contest to robbery and assault in connection with the Mel's sporting goods shooting. She was sentenced to five years probation, which is wild because she admitted to unloading multiple weapons at a business in broad daylight in the direction of multiple people. So maybe people were too quick to believe that money didn't prevent justice from being served. Patty tried to appeal, but the Supreme Court refused to hear it, and Patty was finally sent back to prison to finish the rest of her term. But don't worry, that didn't affect her relationship with Bernard. While Patty was in prison, Bernard would drive 60 miles or 97 kilometers four times a week just to visit her. The couple got engaged on Valentine's Day in 1978, but before they could get married, oh gosh darn it, Bernard needed to get divorced first. Who was going to be his divorce lawyer? A man named George Martinez, a lawyer who was chosen by Patty's legal team, who were Al Johnson and uh, F. Lee Bailey at the time. Patty then decided to dump her lawyers and made George Martinez her main lawyer. And then August 1978, she filed a motion claiming that Johnson and Bailey were ineffective counsel during her trial, and that's why it didn't go in her favor. Well, that motion was rejected, so take that, Patty. Wow, didn't mean for that to turn out. But Patty then put all of her focus on trying to change the public perception of her by doing as many interviews and press engagements as possible. This was the beginning of Patty's campaign to get her sentence commuted, commutated, sorry. And thanks to a subject of one of our previous episodes, public opinion shifted in Patty's way. At first, people were skeptical about the idea that Patty was brainwashed enough to be a willing participant in multiple bank robberies and to freely stay with her abductors for nearly two years. But then in November 1978, more than 900 people died of cyanide poisoning in a mass suicide in Jonestown in Guyana. I say suicide, but we really know it was murder and the culprit behind it was Jim Jones. For more information on that and to hear the episode that broke me mentally, check out episode 131, Jonestown Massacre. And that, dear listeners, is now the fourth past episode that I was able to promote organically within this single episode, which feels impressive, but uh, not as impressive as the fact that the Jonestown Massacre managed to change the public opinion on Patty Hearst, which led to then-President Jimmy Carter 
commuting her sentence, uh, commutating, I think it is, uh, her sentence on the bank robbery charge. So she was released from prison in February 1979 after serving 22 months of that seven-year sentence. So what was life like for the Hearst family during this whole ordeal? Well, it put a strain on Patty's parents, Randy and Catherine, which led to their separation in 1978. In 1982, they legally divorced after 44 years of marriage. Catherine moved to Beverly Hills, where she died from a stroke in 1998 at the age of 81. Just months after his divorce, Randy got remarried, but was divorced in 1987. Then just months after that, Randy remarried again. He died from a stroke in December 2000 at the age of 85. I find it fascinating that both Randy and Patty just seemed to go from one relationship to the next as though neither could handle being single because it forced them to look inward. I'm speculating. There's also something to be said for the fact that Patty continued to fall for authority figures. First her teacher, then one of her captors, later her security guard. I'm not suggesting anything. I'm just saying when it's all laid out, it's incredibly interesting. But continuing with the Hearst family, Patty's sister Anne was arrested in March 1975 with misdemeanor possession of amphetamines. She was arrested at Niagara Falls, attempting to cross into the United States. During a court hearing, Anne admitted the pills were hers. She was then questioned about the location of Patty, who was at the time a fugitive. Anne was given four months probation, and then the charges were dropped. Now, before I get into life for Patty, since this whole, whole ordeal, I would have to remind us all of the Crocker bank robbery. Earlier, I said if you're an accessory in a felony that involves death, you and everyone involved is charged with murder, whether you're responsible or not. So technically, every SLA member present at that bank in April 1975 should have been charged with Myrna Opsal's murder. As a reminder, Jim Kilgore, Mike Borton, Emily Harris, and Kathy Salaya went inside. Steve Salaya, Bill Harris, Patty Hurst, and Wendy Yoshimura were all outside. Steve Salaya was arrested in September 1975, and he was acquitted of the Crocker bank robbery in April 1976. He worked as a house painter until his death in 2013. Bill and Emily Harris pleaded guilty and to kidnapping and the robbery at Mel's Sporting Goods. They each served six years. Uh, they were released in 1983. Uh, Bill became an investigator for lawyers. Bill and Emily, who had been married this entire time, officially divorced so that Emily could continue a long-term relationship she'd been having with a woman. Oh, Kudos to Emily. Living her truth. Yeah. Bill got remarried, had two sons. Emily became a successful computer consultant for Hollywood Studios and lived with her partner in California. Neither were charged with Myrna's death at the time. Wendy Yoshimura was convicted on explosive and weapons charges stemming from an incident with her boyfriend. She served six months and was released. She's now an artist in L.A., she was also never charged in Myrna's death. After the arrests of Patty, Bill, and Emily in September 1975, Kathy Salaya, Jim Kilgore, and Mike Borton 
went off the grid. Mike Borton surrendered in 1984. He spent 18 months in prison on a parole violation and then moved to Oregon, where he married Kathy Celaya's sister, Josephine, and started a flooring business. After a segment on America's Most Wanted about Myrna's death, Kathy Celaya was discovered living in Minnesota under the name Sarah Jane Olson. She was now a stay-at-home mom who did community theater. At the time of her arrest in June 1999, Kathy had been on the run for 24 years. Jim Kilgore fled to South Africa, where he became a teacher and an anti-apartheid activist. He was extradited to the United States in 2002 to face charges relating to Myrna's murder and the Crocker bank robbery. Jim was one of five people who finally got charged. There was also Bill and Emily Harris, Mike Borton, and Kathy Celaya. Even though Patty Hearst was also at the scene of the crime, she was not charged. And even though during her first trial, Patty said she would do anything she could to put the SLA members behind bars, she refused to testify against them in this particular case. So in February 2003, Bill, Emily, Mike, Kathy, and Jim were all found guilty and sentenced to six to eight years each. I find it shocking because Bill never went in the bank. He sat in the car outside the entire time, and yet he was found guilty and did prison time. You know who else sat in the car outside the entire time? Patty. And I know she was brainwashed to be there. It wasn't her fault. But again, I don't buy it. If she was brainwashed, why wouldn't she testify against them in the case? I'm sure you're going to tell me she wanted to move on with her life and I should go easy on her. But that's not my style because I'm already all hopped up on this. And remember early SLA members, Russ Little and Joe Ramiro, they were convicted for the 1973 murder of Marcus Foster even though they absolutely weren't the shooters. Uh, an appeal court ordered a new trial for Russ Little uh, because apparently the judge coerced the jury into pushing a uh, guilty verdict. After a second trial, Russ was acquitted and released in 1981. Joe Ramiro remained in prison. The parole board recommended his release in 2015, but as of 2018, he had been denied parole 11 times. Joe does not come up in a recent search of the Pelican Bay State Prison Records, so I hope that means he's been released. It could mean he has died or he was transferred to another prison, but we're going to try and be hopeful that he was released since, you know, he was uh, convicted of a crime he didn't commit. And one last update before I get into Patty's life. This time about our dear old friend, lawyer, F. Lee Bailey. In 1982, Bailey was charged with a DUI. Then in the 90s, Bailey represented a drug dealer named Claude Dubock as part of a plea bargain. Dubock put $5.9 million into a trust that was supposed to go to the government. The trust was handled by F. Lee Bailey. Over the years, the trust grew to more than $20 million. So Bailey proposed that he would turn over that original $5.9 million to the government ah, and then just keep the remaining money for himself. A judge 
shockingly disagreed and ordered Bailey to turn over the full amount. And he refused. (laughs) Because of that, F. Lee Bailey was disbarred in 2001. He moved to Maine in 2010 and took the bar exam there, hoping that he could then practice law there. And while he passed the bar, uh, the board of bar examiners voted against him regaining his law license on the grounds they felt that he failed to prove he had the honesty and integrity to practice law. He tried again two years later, but was denied again. As of 2016, he was working as a legal consultant in a small office above a beauty salon. Now, Patty Hearst, who goes by Patricia now, married her bodyguard, adult of her boyfriend, two months after she was released from prison in 1979. The couple had two daughters, Jillian in May 1981, and Lydia in September 1984. In December 1981, Patty released a memoir called Every Secret Thing. In it, she admitted to being involved in the Crocker Bank robbery, which again should have made her liable in Myrna's murder, but she was never charged. Uh, In the book, Patty fully denied being a willing participant of the Hibernia bank robbery. You know, the one where she was seen on camera holding a gun. She claimed she was threatened to participate by the SLA. Patty also said the only reason she was charged with that crime was because she was famous. She pointed out that Bill and Emily Harris were never charged with that robbery. And maybe, Patty, that's because Bill and Emily Harris weren't in the bank. And maybe because of the three of you, you were the only one caught on surveillance cameras. In the memoir, Patty said she was a helpless victim for the 591 days that she lived with the SLA She said she lived in constant fear of Donald DeFries and Bill Harris. Patty described loathing Willie Wolf and Steve Celaya, despite having dated both during her captivity. She also painted writer Jack Scott in a very negative light. Jack later sued Patty for libel, and uh, he won a $30,000 settlement uh, from that. Something I find interesting when Jack agreed to help the three SLA members get to California or get out of California, Jack and Patty drove across the country with Jack's parents. During that time, I guess they just had a lot of time to chat because Patty became really close with Jack's mother, Lydia. So close that Patty later named her second daughter, Lydia, after Jack's mother, which... I find interesting, but Patty's memoir was a bestseller. In the mid-80s, Patty and her family moved to Connecticut, where her husband Bernard took the job as head of security for Hearst Corporation. Patty then tried her hand at acting with bit parts in Serial Mom, Biodome, Pecker, and Crybaby, which is probably yet another movie that I watched when I was too young to do so. Mm -hmm. And even though I don't think she knows this show even exists... Shout out to Kara, my friend from elementary school who let me go to her house every day after school for a solid week 
so we could watch Crybaby on VHS. And shout out to the love of nine-year-old Christie's life, Crybaby Walker. Patty was uh, also on some random episodes of Boston Common, Frasier, and Veronica Mars. She was also one of the writers behind the 1988 movie Patty Hearst, which starred Natasha Richardson. And while I'm talking about pop culture, I'll also add that multiple artists have written songs about Patty Hearst. In 1976, Danny Elfman released a song, You Got Your Baby Back, which was also called the Patty Hearst song. In 1978, Warren Zevin wrote a song, Roland the Headless Thompson Gunner, which uses the line, quote, Patty Hearst heard the burst of Roland Thompson's gun and bought it. In 1985, the punk band The Misfits wrote a song about Patty called She, and in 1988, the indie rock band Camper Van Beethoven released an album called Our Beloved Revolutionary Sweetheart, which featured a song called Tanya. Uh, And while Patty's sentence was commutated, that wasn't enough for her. She wanted her record completely wiped clean. So in January 2001, Patty received a full pardon from then-President Bill Clinton for her terrorist activities with the SLA. At the same time, Clinton pardoned 140 people, including his brother Roger, which just feels like a massive conflict, and I don't understand how that was possibly allowed to happen. Patty and Bernard remained married until his death in 2013. He was 68 years old. In 2016, their daughter Lydia married Chris Hardwick, who you may recall was briefly accused of emotional and sexual abuse by a former partner in 2019. And in a move that I absolutely did not see coming, Patty Hearst found herself a hobby, and it involved dogs. Her first move? To train beagles to sniff out termites. I can't even begin to think of how she did that. But then in 2008, Patty's French bulldog, Diva, won Best of Opposite Sex at the Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show. Opposite of Sex is basically the award given to the best animal in the ring, who is the opposite sex from the best in breed winner. At the 2017 Westminster show, Patty's French bulldog Tuggy won best in breed. Her other bulldog Ruby won best of opposite sex. And in 2015, Patty's Shih Tzu Rocket won first place in the toy category. After the show, Patty was interviewed where she said, quote, people move on. I guess people somehow imagine you don't evolve in your life. I have grown daughters and granddaughters and other things that normal people have. Now, I'm no psychologist, but I find it interesting that she felt the need to specifically point out that she's a normal person, not just trying to put distance between the person she is now and the self-described urban gorilla who was arrested back in 1975, but like she was trying to say, she's just like us, just a regular normal person. When in reality... Her whole life, she has seen more money than most of us will see in a lifetime. And she used that money to get herself out of some very serious trouble. 
and I may get hate for saying it, but the entire situation felt like Patty was a sheltered teenager who grew up in a very influential family, and she grew bored of her life. And when she was taken, it was a horrible situation until she had her eyes opened about the real world around her, not the upper-class world she had been growing up in. And soon her life had excitement, and she felt like she was really making a difference in the world. And then they got caught, and she realized she had two options. Either go to jail for years and destroy your family's reputation, or blame the SLA and say none of it was your fault. I think that Patty's first interview with police was the only time that Patty was ever truly honest with herself. She admitted she didn't like her life with Stephen Weed. She felt suffocated. She wanted out. And I think that while the abduction didn't start off as the escape Patty had wanted, I think in the end it gave her exactly what she wanted. And then they got caught. And Patty had to plaster a fake smile on her face to hide the fact that she was back to living the life that she resented. In her youth, it seemed Patty's biggest fear was that she would become her mother. And in the end, she kind of did. So maybe that was a far worse punishment than any jail sentence she could have received. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm Christy Oxborough. Wowzer. Yeah. So in-depth, so much information. Let's take one more break, hit the can one more time, grab another drink, and we'll be back to wrap things up on this Patty Hearst episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing Patty Hearst. I gotta say, this is, a, this is a case where I felt like I knew so much, and I feel like what I learned is I know so little. <laughs> so very little. I had no idea that th there was a connection to Citizen Kane. Yeah. Rosebud. I've never seen it. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's, it's Again, long. Earlier, I commented about how much Crybaby is one of my favorite movies. So I think that proves maybe Citizen Kane, not my style. Hasn't made it to the list yet. But you know what? That's yeah. not on you. That's yeah. not on you. There's a lot of movies. Yep. Yep. Um, <laughs> this is going to reveal more about me. When you said that she had a crush on her 23-year-old math teacher when she was 17, and then they got together, I wrote... <laughs> 
So you had a chance? No, I no, I wrote thank God that mine didn't make the move. Not that I made an overt move. I never made a move, but thank God. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 And look, I'm not it, saying it's not like it's absolutely normal to have a crush. Of course. There was there was one in high school that he was like it was his first year teaching and I was like, "Hot damn." I, of course, never made a move, and I'm not suggesting, um, I mean, she was young. The main thing on him was he should not have responded in any way. He should have been like, and we're good. So, yes, Stephen Weed, bad guy. That was a bad Bad guy. Bad decision, man. Bad guy. It wasn't the move. Not the move. Nope. Um, Ms. Moon. Shocking that hasn't been my nickname before now. It won't be because now it's connected to someone who was involved in a fringe group. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, Oh, God, so many notes here. Uh, The fact that the police found Patty's name on the SLA list and didn't tell anyone, that feels not great. Troubling. Yeah. Troubling. Um. The fact that leaving cyanide-dipped bullets was their calling card. Chilling. Um, Patty being kept in a closet. That's my biggest nightmare. Realized. I was trapped in an elevator recently for a few minutes and... Yep. Nothing I ever wanted. No. Nothing I ever wanted. It's interesting that they asked for this... Essential, it wasn't ransom, but essential ransom, and that the hearse had no liquid assets so that they couldn't pay it. That's interesting because to me, it's like this concept of what wealth is. Now, I'm not suggesting that they weren't obscenely wealthy, but it's interesting again the concept that it would be like, you have all this money, and they're like, no, we actually don't. Like, we do, but it's tied up. Like, it's not as easy as just like calling in a banker's check, you know, I think is. Right. is Interesting to think about. Um, Interesting, again, the, like, connections to government, like the connections to Ronald Reagan appointing Catherine Hurst to this position. It's fascinating to me. Um, You said footnote. I said, what? (laughs) I thought it would be a side note. I know. I thought about it, but it was just such a, it was was half a sentence. And I was like, I can't. Because my favorite thing is a side note title that's like half a sentence long. Of course. Although a a side note title longer than the side note. All I'm saying is Wikifeet doesn't know what they're coming for them when we start introducing footnotes. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) Um, Wikifeet notes. Wikifeet notes. Come on. We can't give them the press. Uh, Don't look it up. Folks, don't look it up. You don't want it. Nope. You don't want it. Um, <laughs> gosh. What I love is people let them hide out on East 54th Street. I just wrote, and the neighbor ratted. <laughs> <laughs> Why? I'm a child. I'm a child. It is what it is. Um, here's, now listen. Here's something I find interesting because I hear you and I think that it's interesting for us to look at this case from from all perspectives. Sure. What I find interesting is Patty starts to give these communiques herself. Yes. 
And I'm like, why did they let her do so many of the communiques? Why did she become the face of it? Was it because they saw a greater benefit there? That it was like, this is someone who is very privileged, who is now, quote, seen the light, and that's what we want the face of this organization to be? Was it because sure. she was young and beautiful and female? Was it because no one else wanted to do it? I mean, was it a mixture of all of the above? I don't know. But I do find it interesting, as you were talking about this more and more, it's like they did start to kind of make her a face of the organization, which is interesting. Which the only thing I will say, because we're obviously dealing with someone who is very young, as we know, I love to talk about how people's brains don't start develop stop developing until they're 25, it's interesting that for someone who could perhaps have felt like they didn't fit in or whatever to their very privileged lifestyle, that maybe she started to feel very important in this group. And the fact that sure. they kind of were giving her this position where she was the one giving these communiques, making it seem like she was kind of like the face of the group. I'm curious from a psychological standpoint how that impacted her. Did that make her want to stay more? Was that a part of it? Was it not? I mean, none of us will ever know. But I just think it's interesting in the grand scheme of of talking about this case from every angle that it feels like that could be almost a coercion that they may not have, they may not have even known they were doing. Like, give her this job; it's going to make her more invested. You know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah, interesting. Possible. Interesting to think about. Um. Something I realized partway through is we were talking about a case that involved more than one bank robbery. And that's when I realized I was wearing my Utah Get Me Two t-shirt. For those who don't know, of course, that's a line spoken by Gary Busey in hit major motion picture, Point Break, starring true Canadian gem Keanu Reeves, directed by talented gift Catherine Bigelow. Um, and that I've seen. Still not Citizen Kane. Doesn't matter. Um, in many ways, I think Point Break was my personal Citizen Kane. Don't quote <laughs> me on that. Don't quote it. Don't put it out there. I don't want it. I don't want it. Um, it's interesting, again, this entire concept of Stockholm Syndrome. Because, of course, Patty Hearst is, be is known historically in pop culture, etc., as being kind of, again, the face of Stockholm Syndrome. And I think there's a couple of things that are very interesting to think about when we talk about that. I think, of course, there is a world in which, of course, she went through this trauma. Stockholm Syndrome yeah. is real. She very much could have been operating from that place. I think sure. it's also very interesting that she was a very attractive, young, beautiful white woman who, is it feasible, to the point that you've made, that this was kind of put upon her as, she couldn't possibly have wanted this other life. When in reality, maybe she did. And 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 I would say almost, I'm trying to pick my words carefully, it, it, that perhaps is it possible that she did learn about this other way of life for the first time. She did become interested in being a part of the other side of the argument, the debate, whatever you want to call it. You know, and then again, this Stockholm Syndrome could have been thrust upon her. Again, I I don't know. I'm not licensed. I'm not a psychologist. We present the information as we find it. I think what we're doing here is 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 having conversations which are important to have. And it's interesting to me, again, from every angle. 
is it Stockholm Syndrome? Mm-hmm. Possibly. Is it yeah. that that was thrust upon her because she legitimately felt called to this other lifestyle? Possibly. Is there a third, fourth, fifth other possibility? Yeah. And I think that's why we're still talking about her so many years later, ultimately. Um, you know, it's interesting, the the idea of her keeping a token or gift from her alleged rapist. Yes, I, I hear this argument. I hear the other side, too, where, again, perhaps that was a part of this whole thing for her. You know, we, we've, we've heard in obviously different cases as well that um, victims will do things that that do not necessarily make sense on paper, but are quite common in terms sure. of the stories of victims. So you never know. You never know with that. Um, the fact that she pleaded the fifth so many times, very interesting detail when we're kind of building this psychological profile. Um, I could see that again being because she was invested legitimately or not. I could see pleading the fifth on both sides. So I think for me, when I'm hearing all of this information, I'm like, I just don't know that I hear anything definitive necessarily either way. I do know definitively that she was kidnapped and and taken against her will. So we do know that ultimately she is a victim in terms of that was not right. That was not by choice. Period. Um, But again, as I said, I think there's a reason we still discuss this case so many years later, and it's because the details are fascinating. Um, you said Valerie, I thought Amy Winehouse, another connection to another past True Crime and Cocktails hey. album, album, episode. I've got music on the brain. Of course. Um, interesting again, now my notes just start to get messy because I was writing far too fast. Interesting again, some of these people involved, 1999, um, again, we were talking about I didn't write down the specific of who, but, but I believe it was perhaps Emily had been on the run for 24 years. Oh, interesting. Kathy, yeah. Oh, sorry. Excuse me. Thank you. Um, interesting. Interesting. Interesting that this was a group. I am not speaking from fact in this moment. I'm speaking from my perception that it was a group that people were so invested in, but then kind of fell away. Now, if we want to talk in the grander scheme of cults, for example, if we have learned sure. anything doing this show and covering the cults that we've we've covered, Heaven's Gate is one that comes to mind. That's one that keeps going. There's there's sure. there's other cults where people get deeply invested and they keep going on and on. It doesn't matter if people have passed, it doesn't matter if there's been legal action. These are things that continue. But from my perception, this feels like a group. Now I'm I don't know whether it's Right, wrong, or indifferent to call them a cult, but I'm just making the comparison. It's interesting to me that this is a group that's seemingly faded, as opposed yeah. to these other groups where there's still branches of them probably to this day. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Again, Lauren, what does that matter? I'm offering food for thought. Crybaby. Was Crybear, Crybaby Johnny Depp? Is that who that was? Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much. That's what I thought. Mm-hmm. Um You know, it's interesting because the one thing that I need to comment on before I let it go is Patty did say later in life, she referred to her herself or this whole situation as being like, can't people evolve in their lives? And ultimately what I need to, to comment on that is I do believe the answer is yes. And I do believe that when people are involved in things, when they're very young, you know, there are times where it's heartbreaking to think about 
people being held to a certain standard at a young age. Sure. On the flip, there are also people that do things at a young age when you know the difference between right and wrong, and that doesn't make it, that there's no excuse for that. So I think that ultimately my takeaway from this, which I, I found this entire case very fascinating as someone, as I've said again, I thought I knew a lot and then I realized I didn't, is that I've walked away feeling like ultimately... I wonder what the opinions would have been if she was a man and what the conversations would have been to this day. Would we still be having this conversation? Would we still be dissecting her choices, her, you know, um, motivators, her ultimate guilt, investment, victimhood, whatever? I offer that because I think the ultimate... Answer is, is we probably wouldn't be. I think sure. if it was, if she was a man, we would have probably made our own decisions uh, societally years ago. Um, and or I just don't think it would be so fascinating to people. And that doesn't alleviate anybody of anything other than I think it's, of course, important always to call out what I view as uh, patriarchy, misogyny, all of the above. And, uh, and how it's interesting that this could be a place where that um, comes into play in the conversation that that I, I don't know because I haven't been a part of all the conversations. Maybe it has, but I just think it's an important thing to note. Yes. And look, I get it. I, I came at Patty pretty hard in this. Listen, I absolutely did. Uh, I'm not suggesting she was not a victim. She was taken from her home unwillingly. She was put in a closet for days, blindfolded, all of these things. She went through things she never should have. Uh, is it possible absolutely every single thing she's ever said is true? Yes. At 19, you are a completely different person than you are when you officially become an adult. I know. I was a wreck of a 19-year-old. <laughs> uh, there was a day... Uh, where I slept on the bathroom floor because I came home a little intoxicated and I was using the bath mat uh, as a blanket. Uh, but I did not recall getting there. <laughs> so very different people um, at that age. And I think of some of the things I've done, especially at that age and uh, how just how big your feelings are. The disgusting scum of men that I cried over at 19 who just looking back, ew, what was I thinking? The point is I was 19 and I wasn't. So at 19, I could absolutely see it being a case of she got shown a world that she was like, hey, look at this world. I fit in here more than I fit there. She never wanted to be like her mother. Here are these people who are completely different. They're more like me. They accept me as myself, as opposed to my parents who expect me to be a certain way. I get that. So it's possible. There's a little truth in all of it, where some totally. things happened that probably shouldn't have. But also at the same time, she eventually gave in to, you know what, these guys maybe have a point. But uh, yeah, it's tough. We're never going to know no. What really happened? She gave her thoughts, but then the people, um, the members who are still alive have given their thoughts. Those thoughts are not the same. So we're never going to know. We weren't there. It is what it is. 
And uh, yeah, I mean, she there were so many things she went through that she should not have ever had to go through. Um, and I'm sorry to her for that. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a case of who are you? Who do you believe? And yes, is it possible that she was assaulted by Willie Wolf and it wasn't the relationship that everybody else is portraying it to be? Yes. Is it possible she kept that memento from him because some part of her thought if she keeps it, then that adds like a romance or a sweetness, which helps her handle what she actually went through more than possible. It's just, it's a lot of like, it's, it's two people. Who do you, who do you, who do you believe? And it's, I don't know. It was a horrific situation all around. And I think the majority of the SLA went into it thinking, I can't wait to save the world, make it a better place. And the idea that they chose violence immediately was that was the moment they should have just gone, this is out of our hands and step back. Yeah. Well, 100%. And I think, too, that can also speak to like, I mean, so many layers of of youth and and. You know, I think we've all been various ages, but certainly as young people, you 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 get out into the world and you see the world and you want to make change. You want things to be better. And then you find out how difficult change truly is to make. And yeah. that doesn't mean that you shouldn't try, of course. But I think we can all see how someone could leap to violence. It's just that I think that most of us don't. Right. Or, sure. or, you know, we let or or it's kind of finding those those ways through protest, through, you know, different social groups and volunteering and all of the above. What can we do in those aspects to make change? Do I fault young people wanting to make the world a better place? No. Do I fault the methods? Sure. So, yes, of course. We can't be buying guns and kidnapping people and killing people. Like, that's not yeah. that's not what we're doing here. Um, but again, I think what's interesting about all of this is that ultimately it's so compelling, whether we like yeah. it or not. It's such a compelling story. She is such a compelling figure. And the details of which... Again, a group that's potentially started as something positive that turned into what it turned into. Again, it's it's deeply compelling. There's a reason why. I know I've repeated it many times, but there's a reason why. However, many, don't make me do the math. 50 plus years later, it doesn't matter. We're still talking about it. And uh, and I think that's important. And I think it's important to keep those stories alive because, again, it, it reminds people that it's like this isn't necessarily the way to handle things. Maybe not going to yeah. make the difference that you hope it will. Um, and people are going to get hurt in the process. So learn fantastic. from past mistakes. Learn, yes. Those who don't learn from history are damned to repeat it. There you go. There you go. Uh, Christy Oxborough, fantastic work as always. Thorough. Uh, so many details. Again, I thought I knew this story. I didn't. I really didn't. And I commend you for uh, your commitment to bringing all of the information to me, to the listeners, we appreciate you and don't deserve you. I want you to know how adamant I was that I mentioned her dogs. I knew that in my heart. I know. And I thank you for that. <laughs> yep. 
And we thank you, dear listeners, for joining us on this journey. If you haven't already, give us a follow on the socials on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at True Crime and Cocktails, on Twitter at Not Detectives. And of course, if you like some bonus content, some more of these two chuckleheads, go to patreon.com slash True Crime and Cocktails, where you can learn more about our subscription-based service over there. And the only place for official True Crime and Cocktails merch is, of course, truecrewmerch.com. So check that out as well. If you are interested, Christy, do you want to tell the people about next week's episode? On the next True Crime and Cocktails, Chrisley knows best. I've heard a lot about it. I know nothing about it. So I am jazzed to learn about what is this scandal and, and how deep are we going? The answer is as deep as we need to. Why did I have yeah. to talk about deepness? It doesn't matter. <laughs> Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Good night to everyone but Mr. Big. <gasps> Good night, Aiden Shaw. <laughs> <laughs>